Hey, welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Check us out on the web at missiodeschicago.com. Today we're going to look at 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11, and it says this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves with the strength that God supplies in order that that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So Peter, he starts this text off with a bang. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore. And it it kind of gets us all, it's all, it gets us all set up for something really, really significant. The, The end of all things is at hand. Hollywood has kind of had a heyday with this of sort of various end-of-the-world scenarios, whether it be zombies or aliens or asteroids or nuclear war. Like, the end of the world is a very cinematic and epic experience that we get to see through our television and TV screens. And usually the preparation involves, like, scavenging food and gathering weapons to shoot the inevitable bad guys. But Peter has a very different approach here. And it almost seems like he's, he's playing with us a little bit because he starts this text off by saying the end of the world is at hand. He gets us all ramped up, and then he goes through and he starts talking about these fairly mundane and ordinary things. Love one another. Show hospitality. Use your gifts. Worship God. It's, it doesn't seem to quite compute. The, the end of the world is happening, therefore just live in Christian community. It, it struggles to fit because usually, like, if, if someone were to tell me the world is ending um, in a year, I think there's, there's two directions I, I might go. Or if they just told me I was going to die in a year. I'm not trying to be morbid, just, just for sake of a point. Um, I think one way I could go would be, like, resignation. Um, life doesn't matter. It's all over anyway. Um, I'm just going to, like, empty my... Well, I don't have that big of a savings account, but empty my, um, my small savings account. Um, quit school... If I don't pay them, I will have some money. Um, and then I'm, um, I'm just going like, to live it up. Um, I, I think when, if we were to think of like, the end of the world, resignation would be uh, an option some of us might lean towards. Another option might be a, a search for significance. I think this might actually be, um, might resonate more with, with this, this crowd, that if we knew we had a year left, that either the world was going to end or we were going to die, that, that something cataclysmic was going to happen, I think we'd want to do something significant. We'd want to, like, fix world hunger. We'd want to, like, bring healing to the environment. We'd want to solve racism. We'd want to do something that, that left our mark on this world in a, in a significant and meaningful way. And the strange thing with what First Peter proposes here is he doesn't fit either of, those, either of those categories. He's kind of talked about the eat, drink, and be merry thing in the previous verses that Bam preached on last week. But he doesn't then swing over and say, okay, like, you need to, like, change the world. You need to become president. You need to fix global poverty. You need to fix the environment. And I'm not saying none of us should work towards those things. Don't hear me wrong. But that's not what Peter chooses to focus on. Instead, he he, he picks up these fairly mundane things and says the world is at, the end of the world is at hand. 
therefore. And as I was reading this, I, this question kind of came to me. Um, my wife has introduced me to this term I hadn't heard before. It's called being extra. Um, and apparently you, you tell someone this when they're being like overdramatic or just like, just like too much. And I admit I have a tendency, like if something like, if something like merits an emotional reaction of like two, I often will like ramp it up to a seven. Like it, it, it just, it just happens. So very often, um, something will happen and I'll overreact and Amy will turn to me very patiently and lovingly and say, read you're being extra. And so here, here's the question. Is Peter being extra here? <laughs> is, he, is he just like ramping up and being like, the end of the world is at hand, therefore live in community? Is he, just, is he just way overreacting? And obviously I'm preaching on it, so the, my, the answer is not that Peter is being extra. There, there, there is a very specific reason why Peter has chosen to, to tie our common life together, the, the church, the community, to this cataclysmic global, cosmic event. And that's what I want to explore today. And I want to explore uh, why Peter grounds this community in the, world, in the end of the world, and I want to explore what this community looks like. And I want to first address that first question of, of why does Peter ground something as mundane as community and something as significant as the end of the world? And to understand the answer to this question, we first need to talk about what a biblical vision of the end looks like. Because I think we often have really um, misinformed notions about the end of the world, whether they're formed through um, Hollywood movies or Christian movies. Often both are very, very wrong. So um, I'm not calling out anybody specific, but... um, (laughs) So first, um, the church is formed... Um, as what I want to call it this morning, an eschatological community. Bam introduced this word um, last week, and I want to continue using it. This just means um, the study of the end times. Uh, This time when something about our world radically shifts, radically changes when Jesus comes back and makes all things new. So we are an eschatological community. And what does Peter mean by the end of all things? I don't think, I don't think Peter means that God is going to come and burn up the world. I don't think Peter means that God is going to come and blow up the world, that it's going to be just utter destruction, utter annihilation. Utter annihilation. I'm, I'm not convinced that's what he's talking about. N.T. Wright says this. He's talking about heaven, and I think it kind of helps us form this vision of an end, not of destruction, but of renewal. He says this, Heaven in the Bible is not a future destiny, but the other hidden dimension of our ordinary life, God's dimension, if you like. God made heaven and earth, and at last he will remake both and join them together forever. And we, when we come to the picture of the actual end in Revelation 21 through 22, we find not a ransomed soul making their way to a disembodied heaven, but rather a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth, uniting the two in a lasting embrace. And so when we talk, we believe that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth in the end. But I don't think it's because God blew up the old one. I think it's because God has chosen from the very beginning. God declared over creation, this is good. And God has has chosen, as that creation has fallen into decay and despair because of sin, is choosing to redeem and renew it. And the final moment when heaven touches earth, this earth that God declared good, however many years ago you want to call it, is going to be brought back into that state of goodness. 
So, so we're not talking about the blowing up of the earth. We're talking about the renewal and the redemption of the earth. I just want to look at this first verse a little bit more closely, just in case you're, you don't quite believe me. Um, so the word end and the end of all things is at hand. Um, this is the Greek word telos. It, it can be used in a very similar way that we use the word end, in that end does not necessarily have to mean... Um, it doesn't have to mean the termination of something. It can also mean the goal or the fulfillment of something. So when we say the ends don't justify the means, end isn't functioning as like the termination of something. It's functioning as the goal. Um, and I think Peter is using the word end in a very similar way here, that he's speaking of the goal, the fulfillment, the accumulation of, of this world, not the end of it, if you will. And if we take this reading of the end, this is more about the... F- Ooh, I just broke my timer. You guys are going to be stuck with me for a while. Um, if we take this reading of end, it's talking more about the fulfillment of the redemptive activity of God in the world than the fiery destruction of earth. The other phrase I want to look at is at hand, because I think, it, at least to me, this is kind of a, a barrier. Because Peter wrote this, um, we call it an epistle, I think. He wrote this epistle um, almost 2,000 years ago. And he was saying then, the end is at hand. And waiting 2,000 years for the end, it doesn't it doesn't seem like he was right, because we've been here quite a while. We've been here quite a while. And this, this brings up something that's really important when we're talking about um, eschatology, or the, the end of the world. And this is, um, it's what theologians call um, the already not yet. That the end is already, the end is already that Jesus died and was resurrected and ascended to heaven, and that in doing so, he, he achieved the victory of God over Satan, sin, death, and hell. But also the end is not yet, because as you all know, we still live and experience suffering and evil and sin and injustice in this world. So even though Jesus has, has defeated these cosmic powers, even though he's put them under his feet, the fulfillment of that victory we're still waiting for. We're almost we're sitting in this time in between the times where, where Jesus has come, but the fulfillment of his coming has not reached its accumulation. So the end is already not yet. And we, we see this even in um, 1 Peter that he's talking about the end as future, but he's also talking about the end as past. In 1 Peter 1.20, he says this. He was chosen. He's talking about Jesus. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed, past tense, in these last times for your sake. So here he's saying the last times happened when Jesus was revealed in his incarnation. But now he's talking, even though it's a near future, he's still talking about Jesus being revealed in this, the future. So w- when we think about the end times, this isn't some chart that we need to throw up and like correlate with various news reports or the wacky prophecy sites with terrible graphics. Um, have you noticed that they're all bad? Like I've never seen one of those wacky prophecy. Like if they just got a good graphic designer, they could do better. Um, like I'm just saying. Um, so, but but rather the end the end times are now. It's been 2,000 years, but the end times are now. We're living in them because Jesus has won his victory, but his victory is not yet complete. So what what does this have to do with the church? What does this have to do with community and these instructions that Jesus gives us? Um, I want to read you a quote from a book I really like that's about um, the church. The the authors say this. "Um, The church is an eschatological community has shown that the bride of Christ exists, metaphorically speaking, with one foot in this world and one foot in the next. The church is a community that lives in the hope of the coming kingdom of God, both to redeem it from this fallen world and to perfect it 
for the age to come. So I, I hope it's becoming a little bit more clear that Peter isn't being extra in this text, but that the reason he's, he's grounding Christian community in the end of the world is because Christians live in a, unique, in a unique community. The church is a unique place because nowhere else in the world do we have sort of this, this straddling of these two eras, the old world and the new world, the old time and the new time, the old heaven and the, the old earth and the new heaven. We're straddling the airs. We've got one foot in this, this, this messy, fleshy, earthy, sinful, suffering, but also beautiful world that we live in. But we also have a, a foot in our future hope. We have a, we have a foot in that, that future that Habakkuk describes as the presence of God covering the earth as the waters cover the seas. And so it actually makes perfect sense that Peter has chosen to ground Christian community in the the end of the world because we are the community that shows this this dead and dying world that there is hope, that there's redemption, that there's renewal in Christ and in the gospel. So Peter's not being extra. He's making perfect sense. And so now that we've addressed this question of why Peter grounds Christian community in in the end of the world, I want to talk a little about little bit about what this community looks like practically. I just want to make four quick points here. Um, First in verse 8, it says this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So Peter starts and he says, I want the churches, I'm calling your community to be a loving community. Love one another. I was so encouraged. Two weeks ago, we had our Ebenezer service. We all um, went to the park, and we got to hear from people in our community speak forth um, what God has been doing in this past season. And it was such a beautiful time for me as someone um, who spends a lot of time thinking and praying and working um, in the midst of this community to hear what God is doing in your lives. Most of it didn't come out of a program we started. Most of it didn't come out of of initiative or something we spent a lot of money on. Most of it came out of you guys simply living in community. New parents being supported by um, parents that have been around the block a couple times. Um, People who were kind of just getting started in life being being supported by their community financially. It It was beautiful to hear how you guys are loving on each other. I think this is one thing like Missio Day does well that we do a really, really, really good job of loving one another, and I'm so thankful for that. But at the same time, even, even as I say that, I hesitate because I know that's not everyone's experience. And I'm, I'm confident that if any, I, if any of you have been in church for any period of time, most of you have been hurt by the church. Maybe you've been hurt by Miss Day. Maybe it was a church a long time ago. If it hasn't happened yet and you, you remain in church, I guarantee you it's going to happen in the future. Church is filled with sinful people. It's filled with broken people. There's sinful and broken people in leadership. And so sin happens. Sin happens. And Peter, he knows this because he says, love one another. But the reason he says it is not because, oh, you're going to have like this perfect utopian community where no one's ever going to get mad. He says because love covers over a multitude of sins. He says, I'm expecting things to go wrong because you're living in community and community is hard. But if you love one another, love is going to lead you into forgiveness and allow you to live in community together. And I just want to make a, a slight side note. It's, it's sort of off topic, but I think it's important. It's this, it's, it, church is not a consumeristic outpost. This is not like a mall 
We're not like a fast food restaurant. We're not like Amazon. We don't just provide goods and services in exchange for money. We don't just take your tithes and assume that you're, you're happy because we talked to you for 35 minutes and here's some really, really great music and get like a little piece of bread and a little bit of wine. Like, first of all, that's a terrible deal. Like, <laughs> you're not getting your money's worth. Um, but, but more than that, we, we've been formed to say, I'm only going to be in community. I'm only going to invest resources in things that benefit me. And if you come into church with that mindset, like, you're missing it. You're missing it. We're called into community to serve, to love, to sacrifice. And church is going to be hard sometimes. You're going to have to cover, cover over multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of sins. It's just going to happen. I'm not trying to be like... Uh, pessimistic, but I, I think this is the reality. But, but, but what God is calling us into is not to be that the second something goes wrong, the second something, someone hurts me, that I'm like, okay, I'm out, I'm going to find a new one. It's like, you will go to McDonald's, it wasn't very good, okay, I'll go try Wendy's. Church is not like that. It's a place we go to invest, and it's, it's a place that is going to hurt occasionally, but community hurts. And I just, like, side note, there are spiritually abusive places that you should not go to church. There are times when you need to get out, and that's okay. That's okay. But I don't think predominantly that's the reason why people hop from church to church to church. So there's that. Throw it by the side. Brian's read this quote. Our senior pastor is on sabbatical right now. His name is Brian, in case you guys don't know. Um, he read this quote a little while ago, and I, I really, really, I think it really gets at this idea of, of love being in loving community and the fact that it's also painful. C.S. Lewis says this, to love is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be run and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And this is what Peter is calling us to. He's calling us to vulnerable loving. He's calling us to a prioritize our community, a, a, a community that is sometimes hard to be in, a community that's going to sometimes take sacrifices for you to be present here. But, but this is the community that, that, that bridges the gap, that stands in this time in between the times and anticipates the renewal of all things. So it's a community that's worth it. So we're called to be a loving community. Second thing, we're called to be a hospitable community. Listen to this verse. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Um, literally, the word hospitality, it just means to love the stranger, to love the stranger. And there's tons in Christian tradition about loving strangers who are not Christians, but here Peter's talking specifically about how we interact with other Christians who are strangers. In First Peter's world, there wasn't, there wasn't hotels, there wasn't Applebee's or or. I'm saying McDonald's a lot in this sermon. I don't know why. I must be hungry. Um, there, was, there wasn't fast food. Um, so if you were traveling, you were completely dependent on the hospitality of strangers for, for food, for shelter. And so Peter's writing this letter to multiple uh, communities in Asia Minor, and he says, 
Show hospitality. When someone from one of these other churches show up, welcome them into your home. Feed them. Give them, give them a place to stay. This is part of how you act out the fact that you are this eschatological community. And so for us, what I think this means is that we also need to be formed as a hospitable community. And again, I think this is something we generally do pretty well. I think most people come into this place who are, are not familiar with our community and they feel welcomed, but I think we can press further. What does it look like to, to not just um, have someone get greeted at the door by a member from host team and maybe talk to for a few minutes during the five-minute party, but what does it look like for you to invite them over for dinner, invite them to lunch or to coffee? And I know we have busy lives and then we have hectic lives, but we need to be able to somehow manage space in our lives to be able to welcome um, the new faces that God is bringing into this space. And we've, I've seen many, many new faces in this building over the summer, which is super encouraging because like, we were half expecting everyone to leave after Brian left on sabbatical and just like, kind of come back in September. So um, as, as you see new faces come into this space, I'm, I'm talking to those of you who've been, been around for a while who are in community here who miss your day as your home. As you look around and see new faces, show hospitality. I get hospitality is costly, but it's what God's calling us into. So Let's be known, not just as a friendly community, but as a community that shows love for those strangers that God is bringing into this place. All right, just two more. The third thing I think God is, is calling our community to be is to be a gifted community. Listen to verses um, 10 in the first part of 11. As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. Excuse me. So God is calling us to be a community um, that, that, that lives and exercises the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, there's many, many um, gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament. The main gift list, you can find them in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. I've put up kind of a, um, I've just kind of thrown them all into, into one slide, and you can thank me. I'm not going to go through all of them. Um, so um, if you're at all for familiar with spiritual gifts, maybe look up there and kind of remind yourself what yours is. If you're not familiar with spiritual gifts, I would really encourage you, um, you can either like just schedule an appointment with me and Bam or like when we can talk about it together. Um, or better than that, a lot of people, there's these um, spiritual gift assessments online where you like their multiple choice. Don't do that. Um, that you're, if you do it, you're doing it wrong. Um, the, way we, the way we lean into our gifts, the way we lean into our gifting is not by taking an online assessment. That just tells us what you want to do, not what you actually um, have been gifted to do. Um, the way you lean into your gifting is simply by serving. Um, maybe you work in, um, maybe, maybe you lean into like hospitality for a while and you're like, you know what, like I'm really bad at like loving strangers. Like I'm, I'm obviously going to keep trying to do it because God calls me to do it, but like that is not my gifting. That is not where I receive life. Um, that is not where I um, like receive the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Like I'm going to try something else. And so my encouragement to you as far as like gifts is don't take an online test. Just serve in the church. 
figuring out um, what gives you life, what, what has God wired you to do and to be as part of this community. So sorry, I had to, I had to throw down on online tests there briefly. Um, but I love, I love what this text does. I think on a literary level, it's just really, really brilliant um, because it, it meets both those of us with kind of a low view of our calling and gifting, and it meets also us with a high view of our calling and gifting. And if you're anything like me, like, whether you have a low or a high view of gifting and calling, like, it fluctuates daily or hourly. Like, we're incredibly inconsistent people. Um, and this passage, it, it speaks to both of us. For, for those of us with a low view of our gifting and calling who, who aren't sure that we can do what God has called us or made us to be and do, this is incredibly encouraging because he says, it's not going to be your words. It's not going to be your strength that, that steps into this. It's going to be the words of God. It's going to be the strength of God. So don't, don't worry about it. Don't worry about the fact that you're weak. You're serving with the strength of God. You're speaking out the very words of Almighty God. The same God that, that spoke creation, matter into existence, is going to be speaking through you. So don't worry about it. But at the same time, these words, they meet those of us who maybe have too high a view of our calling and gifting, who maybe think we can do everything and we're fine, and it reminds us, no, 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 no. Any success, any, any anointing that you receive, it's not because you were really good with words. It's not because you were really, really strong. It's because the power of Almighty God rested upon you. It was with the strength of God that you served. It was with the words of God that you spoke. I just want to say that the church was never meant to be run by trained professionals. Brian is not the leader of this church. Bam is not the leader of this church. Robbie is not the leader of this church. This church is led by the Holy Spirit of God who has given gifts to every single person sitting in this room who have been united with his son. And so we are led by the Spirit. And some of, some, some of you have been given gifts of leadership, and you should lean into that. Some of you have been given gifts of teaching, and you should lean into, the, into that. But the, the image Paul gives us of the church is a body. And a body that's only a head is really, really useless. It doesn't do anything. So, so for the church to be the church, we need to be led by the Spirit. We need to each exercise our giftings, and we need to mutually submit to each other. Sometimes those of us with teaching and leadership gifts, we need to submit to those who have the, the gift of hospitality. We need to especially need to submit to those who have the gift of administration. Um, like, sometimes like this, this is a, there's a mutual submission going on between the gifts so that we are not led by people with a particular gifting, but we're led by the power of God through the Spirit of God. So do your gifts, <laughs> learn them, serve in the church, figure out so, so, some of it might really not fit and that's okay, but, but the best way that we're going to discover what it looks like for each and every one of us to be exercising our gifts so we can be a full body and not just a head is going to be by simply doing these in community and learning through making mistakes and learning through what doesn't work out, what God has wired and gifted us to do. So we are a gifted community. And finally, um, this is the last one. We are a worshiping community. Um, this, this whole section we've been reading is grounded on this idea of prayer. All the way back in verse 7, um, he says, the, the, 
The end of all things is at hand, therefore. Be self-controlled, be sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. For the sake of our prayers. Everything that we're talking about today is grounded on a robust life of prayer. You are not going to get the gift of prophecy or tongues or administration for that matter by just trying really, really, really hard. These are, these are gifts that God bestows, and they're bestowed not because we like, not because he's like some divine vending machine, but because we are in relationship with him. And you can only foster a relationship with someone if you're talking to them. Any of you who are married or dating or have dated know that relationships don't work well when you don't talk. Unless the relationship has gone really, really bad. Like if the relationship is working better when you're not talking, that's, you're doing it wrong. Um... So it's out, of this, it's out of this relationship. It's out of this relationship um, of, that's grounded in prayer that God gives gifts. Um, it might be a little harder to connect like hospitality to prayer, but I was reading up on hospitality a little bit, and the author actually did it. Um, her name's Christine Pohl. She wrote a book called Making Room, and it's this kind of historic and contemporary uh, discussion about what Christian hospitality looks like. It's really, really, really good. She basically went through and she interviewed um, about a dozen communities of hospitality. Some of them were um, Roman Catholic monasteries that were opening their doors to strangers. Some of them were um, evangelical communities that were, that were opening their doors to strangers. So, so it, was, it was all across the spectrum, Protestant, evangelical, Roman Catholic. And, and she comes away and she says this, that almost all almost all insist that the demands of hospitality can only be met by persons sustained by a strong life of prayer in times of solitude. What God is calling us unto, whether it be loving hard people to love or showing hospitality to strangers or, or, or leaning into our gifts, can only be sustained by a life of prayer. It cannot be sustained by trying harder. It cannot be sustained by doing more. It is sustained simply by being with our Father. So, so this is all grounded in prayer, and then it's oriented towards worship. I want to read you the very, very last part. Um, and it's, it's almost like Peter interrupts himself here, because everything was like very logical. It was all flowing. It made sense. And all of a sudden, um, he breaks into song. This, this very last section of, the, of, of verse 11, um, it's actually a formula we're pretty sure that Peter's pulling from an older Christian hymn. This is not original with Peter. It would be like if, if I were preaching and I like just started singing Amazing Grace. It's like, okay, now we're going to worship. Um, and that's what Peter does here. In, in the midst of this sermon on, on community, he breaks into worship, and he says this, to him being glory and dominion forever and ever. Peter starts singing in the middle of his sermon because, because it is in worship. It is in worship we experience the presence of God. It's, I think it's probably... Beyond, other than um, taking communion, I think worship is probably one of the most significant places where, where we, we get a glimpse of that other side. You know how we're straddling these two worlds? We're in the old, broken, dirty, earthy, suffering world that's also beautiful, but we also have a foot in this, this, this new place where the presence of God fills and overflows and covers. And I think one of the ways we can kind of lean into this side is in worship. Because it's in worship, I think, or at least I most tangibly experience the presence of God. It's in worship when I can, when I can walk in even though like, things seem really, really hopeless and have, have my hopes lifted. It's because in worship we, we, we 
we use all of ourselves, our, our, our physical bodies are enabled, our, our lungs are moving, our lips are moving, our voices are singing out. We're surrounded by voices around us singing out the truth of God. And we get to look a little bit like that vision in Revelation of, of every tribe and every nation, countless and countless thousands of angels declaring the praises of God Almighty. Because in worship, we kind of get to lean into that, um, into that future peace. And so... My hope today is that we can just kind of do what Peter did. We've talked about community. I, I really hope that we can embody what Peter's told us about community. But most of all, I hope that as we talk about the, this body that the Spirit is knitting together, he's knitting us together, that our response won't just be, oh, well, those are some interesting points to think about. But that our response will be to lean into worship, lean into praise the God who is even now in our midst. Can you envision this for our church? Missio de Lincoln Square is a community that is grounded in prayer, active in love and hospitality, and dependent on the empowering of the Holy Spirit in such a way that we cannot help but break out in worship, giving glory to God for all that he is doing in our midst. At the very beginning of the sermon, I talked about how this, this church is an eschatological community, a community of the end times, a community with one foot in our world and one foot in our future hope. Monsieur de Lincoln Square, the end is here. We're living in it. But this does not drive us to fear or despair or resignation. Rather, it pushes us into worship because it's in worship we get a glimpse of the world made new, saturated in the presence of God.